Well, our names are Teresa and Gumby. Welcome to Escaping Society. We wrote our own song so we wouldn't have to pay for anyone else's copyright infringement. And we live in a van and we eat from the trash. Making this podcast open for cash. You better listen up because we probably won't last. Because we can't compete with nonsense. Hypnotizing nonsense. This is episode 80, Native Literacy Elders, as a part of our Native Literacy series. And um, our Native Literacy series is meant to help people who are escaping society and trying to reconnect to the, uh, the wild land, you know, whatever we can, tools we can offer, any little bit of help we can offer. Um, I, I used to teach tracking classes and took quite a few myself, so I'm by no means an expert tracker or an expert or anyth- in anything. But I'm trying to pass on some of the stuff that we're interested in and have studied. Because if we're to escape society, if we're to move on to a better paradigm, return to uh, a more human place, we need to reestablish that connection and we need that literacy back. We need to know what we're looking at. We need to understand what we read in the weather and the trees and the forest and the clues left behind by the animals. Um, And I'm here with Teresa and the elder. Did you have something to say? Howdy. Uh, (laughs) And the elders, you know, with the Native Literacy Series, we started off talking about tracking, you know, like everything is a track. So when I say tracking, I can mean many different things, but uh, tracking specifically like animal signs, footprints. And then we talked a little bit about the uh, context of tracking by talking about ecology, um, Native Literacy Mother, which I was not really happy with that episode. I thought it was kind of, I didn't do it justice. It was a little boring. But then we moved on to uh, Native Literacy Songs, where we talked about birds. And uh, for those of you who haven't done a lot of tracking, there is a very strong link between understanding bird language and reading the signs of animals left behind. Well, just this morning, just about an hour ago, our peaceful field where we're normally at, there's there's bird song here and there, but there started to be this huge bird alarm. And out of the corner of my eye, I saw this cat that doesn't normally come around here. I don't know if it's just a feral cat or what, but the birds went crazy. I mean, just just cheep, 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 cheep. Everything was going off, just like a, a car alarm in a parking lot. So that was pretty interesting to uh, see the culprit. Yeah, it was also interesting when you think about it, how that cat, whether we could read the signs or not, was leaving behind signs, footprints, a trail. And it was also leaving behind... Um, audible signs, you know, a trail of bird language as it passed. Mm. And uh, we got some weather moving in. It's supposed to start raining heavy pretty soon. And uh, <laughs> it was just sunny a minute ago. So another example of tracking, you know, watching these clouds move in, watching which direction they're coming from, you know, being able to make pretty good predictions of what the weather's going to do next. Is it just a passing cloud or not? Um, these are all forms of tracking. And I think I mentioned in our Native Literacy Stories podcast where we first started discussing tracking as in footprints um 
why tracking? You know, Daniel Quinn, among other people, have proposed the idea that where our species diverge from other animals. In other words, there's a certain point where if you saw one of our ancestors, you'd say, I don't recognize that as human. That looks like an animal. And then there's another point where you distinguish it from the other animals. It gets more uh, familiar. You'd say, that's that's a human. And some people think that, that that line that gets crossed has everything to do with a tracking culture. Tracking is actually what shaped us. Tracking is how we're wired. Um, the ability to observe clues, put together these clues in an abstract way. When you track, you're putting together a story in your imagination. And the better you are at it, the more accurate that story will be, an accurate reflection of reality. And um, that story will enable you to get food, to be successful, uh, to raise your kids, to pass on your genes. So it was the successful trackers as this art and science of tracking developed that uh, passed on their genes, that became us. We are the descendants of the best trackers. Um, And then the ability, um, some people think that language was developed to, when you think about what there would be to talk about, you know, like we already, of course, communicate just the way animals communicate through body language, through looks, um, through contact. It wasn't like we just didn't have any way to, to communicate with each other. But why did we need to develop this unique thing this language. Um, Not that other animals don't communicate verbally, but there's something unique about the way we do it. It's so complex. And again, that's arguable. Um, We were just listening to a podcast about whale song. Uh, They were talking about the complexity of that. But this abstract idea we're trying to express um, probably was related to tracking, you know, in the the first words that were spoken, the first language that that was developed. Um, We're trying to tell another hunter of the food, you know, what we track, the story that we are reading, interpreting, thinking. So all this, it's fascinating to think about how it's all related, you know, how it all shaped the things that are special for us. And I believe the human animal is a noble, fantastic creature. I am not, you know, I've called myself a misanthrope before, which isn't exactly right. I tend to really not get along with the people in my culture, Um, I don't really know about people outside of my culture. I've never had contact with them. But I think what we truly are, aside from the culture that confines us and stifles that light, is a wonderful, awesome creature. We're so good, you know, our strengths. We have abstract thought in such a uniquely human way. Um, This problem-solving ability, this this ability to interpret and hear and share stories. These are all really good, special traits. And it makes me proud to be a human, and it it motivates me to get my heritage back. Um, I'm not sure any of us can claim humanity the way we're living now. But we can get it back. It's what we are underneath all this crap that they've buried on top of us. So that's a little bit about why tracking is special to me. Um, and in our last episode stories, I talked about how I got started with tracking. So I won't get into that again. But I really encourage you to listen to our other native literacy uh, episodes to kind of give context. So when I say the elders of tracking, what am I referring to? Mostly I'm referring in this context to questions. In animus cultures, um, not only did they believe that life was endowed, life uh, was in the rocks, was in the wind, was in the water, but even more things that seem abstract to our minds, spirits, things that 
have no physical counterpart in reality, at least that we can see. Um, and even stories, uh, masks in Africa, these are all said to have life. Carry your stories preciously. Be, be careful how you share your stories. Your stories are alive. Likewise, these questions are alive. And if we treat them like the elders in our culture, if we were in an indigenous culture and we went out, took a walk, maybe went to our sit spot, we came back, one of the things the elders would often do is ask questions, you know, just not like an interrogation, but like kind of testing you. How much were you paying attention? How much information can you bring back? I can't move around as much as I used to. I'm counting on you to go out and be my scout, to pay attention. Just when you're going to get water, what'd you see? What'd you see? Are the deer coming back? Have the deer increased? Have they left the area? Was there a rabbit? Wow. You know, I'm counting on you for that. I'm going to ask you questions. I'm going to pull out those stories. Those stories are tracking. So these questions now have to serve as our elders, since our elders, just like all of us, um, have lost that connection. We don't tend to be around elders that ask us questions like that anymore. And if we're not careful, we're not on the road to become elders that are going to ask the children tomorrow those questions. So there are six primary elders of tracking. Not that these are the only questions, but gives you a start. Who, what, when, where, why, and how. And each one of these has a, you might say, an art attached to it. So let's start with who. When we ask the question who, what we're asking is identification. It's the art of identification. Now, I call this literacy not loosely. I've thought a lot about um, why to call this literacy. And I can't even remember if I got this from somebody else or if I invented it myself at this point. And I guess it doesn't really matter because it's the, the practice of this rather than giving credit to some other white guy or another, you know. We're all in it together. We're trying to, to regain this. So who? Identification. If you become a master at identification, in other words, you can see a sign and like, oh, that is a red fox. That is a gray fox. You're not tracking yet. You're really good at the alphabet. You've laid a good foundation, a good groundwork. And this is kind of what I think of as the park ranger level. Park rangers are always leading hikes, and what they focus on exclusively pretty much is identification. They might call that tracking, but to my way of thinking, it's not tracking yet. Because if you learn the alphabet and you can recite it A, B, C, D, it doesn't mean you can sit down and read a book. But if you don't learn the alphabet, you can't read the book. Hmm. So I'm not trying to uh, dismiss it. It's a very important first step. I want to pass on a couple of the things that helped me get into who, uh, identification. Um, one of the first things I was taught was focus on the mammals. Everything leaves a track. You know, birds, you see, you start seeing signs of earthworm, frogs, turtles, clouds, the sun. The sun leaves huge tracks across the land. Um, you know, it goes on and on. Focus on the mammals first. It's a really good doorway in, and it's familiar because we are mammals. When I used to teach this to kids, I'd have kids come into a camp, and it would be like Fox Walker Camp. It'd be about tracking. I would draw a huge circle on the board, and then inside that, a smaller circle. And that's the way I'd start the class. I'd say, who knows what this is? What do you think it represents? Well, when you look at that, what do you think? You know, kids would bullseye, uh, hunting, like, I don't know. And I'd be like, yeah, that's, that's interesting. You know what this is? It's a nipple. 
Because we're going to talk about mammals. So these are some of the things unique to mammals. Nipples, giving milk, fur. And of course, you can imagine sitting down with a bunch of eight, nine, ten-year-olds. I've got their attention. You know, it's a great way to start a class. Um, But yeah, you know, so focus on the mammals. And the mammals in your area, I know this is true here in North Carolina. I believe, I'm pretty sure it's true across the United States. And it might be true all over the world, but... You know, the further we get away from my knowledge of place right here, the more I'm going out on a limb, and I'm not really sure. But they can be divided into seven groups. To pick out those seven groups, get in the habit of counting toes. If you can, see if you can tell a front foot from a back foot. Count the toes. Sometimes the toes are different from the front foot and the back foot. And look for claws. So, Do you mean there's different amount of toes on the front and back foot? Yes, for oh. some of these groups. Let's start with one group, the canine family. And by the way, if you look at a mammal field guide, like a Peterson Field Guide to Mammals, um, they'll divide up the classes of mammals, the orders of mammals. There's a lot of overlap between these tracking groups that I'm about to tell you, but they're not completely the same because sometimes animals will be more genetically related to another animal, but their track will more resemble another group. Oh, So the canine group, the dog family, we've got four, four claws. Now that means four toes up front, four toes in the back, and the presence of claws. If you see that, you know, just, if you see that, reminds me of that joke, then you're probably dealing with a member of the dog family with nothing else to go on. You start uh, learning more details and you can be more sure and distinguish members of the dog family. But these are just the broad strokes of the alphabet. How many letters are in the alphabet? 26. 26. I always forget that. 26 letters in our alphabet, and you learn that to read. I'm just talking about seven groups here, so be uh, encouraged. (laughs) The cat family, four, four, four toes up front, four in the back, no claws. Why no claws? Because they're retractable. Unless a cat is slipping in mud or something unusual is happening, they're not walking with their claws out. Those claws are inside. Um... Let's see, what else have we got? Here we've got the uh, the deer family. Now, the deer family, go out west, we've got elk, there's moose. Uh, there are other members of the deer family. But right here where we're at in North Carolina, in this part of North Carolina, there's only the deer, the white-tailed deer. Two, two. Claws not applicable. Deer don't have claws. If they did, would that not be fairly scary? Actually, the hooves themselves are fairly oh, scary. So, yeah, deer <laughs> with, with, with claws, yeah, I would be scared. <laughs> but two by two. And that's unique. It looks like two toes up front, two in the back. These are hoofs. Now, next, five, five claws. Five toes up front, five in the back, and claws show. This is the weasel family. Um, I was surprised when I first started some of the things that fit in the weasel family. You know, I think weasels and ferrets. But we're also talking about skunks. We're talking about otters. Um... Crap, I feel like there's more mink if they happen to be in your area. And uh, you may be surprised the animals that are in your area that are so slick you never see them. Um, But five toes up front, five in the back, and they show claws. We've got um, rodents. Now, here's where a difference is. So a rodent will show, I hope I get this right, five up front, five toes, four in the back, and the presence of claws. Sometimes the claws can be hard to see. Then we've got the lagomorphs, which means rabbits. And uh, we only have the eastern cottontail here in North Carolina. And uh, that's four up front, four in the back. And the presence of claws, although that can be tricky. They have furry feet. And finally, the seventh group is 
I don't have a good name for this, but this is where there's a lot of like different species lumped together, hand-like footprints. I was wondering where the uh, the possum and raccoon. Possum, raccoon, us, of course, um, bear. You know, species that aren't necessarily closely related, but their tracks look similar. They remind you when you look down, sort of like a human hand. So you might say, well, that, that's five toes, five toes, and sometimes the presence of claws, like for instance, a raccoon or a bear. It's true. It takes a little bit of practice to uh, distinguish that from the uh, weasel family. Now, a little more advanced for these seven groups, and I know I'm trying to move fast. We're trying to beat these uh, rain clouds, but rewind it, pause it if you're really interested, and, you know, write it down, check it out. But sometimes you can't get a clear track. Now, here's the secret when you're tracking. Like, it's fine when you track along a creek and get to see where the animal was just along the creek in the mud, uh, walk through that clay in the puddle, but... Sooner or later, you know, we don't live in a huge, huge mud flat, most of us anyway. Um, you're going to have to track beyond that mud. So what you're looking for, you can't see toes and claws necessarily anymore unless you're a really good tracker. You're looking for what's called compression shapes. Those same seven groups I mentioned, each one of those configurations of toes and claws has a certain shape. For instance, the dog family looks oval. So I might notice an impression in the grass that looks oval, like an egg, distinguished from the cat family that looks completely round. The weasel family is rectangular. They look wide, more wide than long. And this is different from the hand-like group that looks splayed out like a maple leaf. Um, the rodent group and the lagomorphs, the rabbits, you're looking more at uh, track patterns rather than individual feet. Um, that distinguishes that. So in other words, they have a certain way of walking where the back feet pass the front feet. And it's that pattern of dots rather than individual feet because we're talking about smaller animals with a smaller stride um, that distinguish that. And it's a really interesting thing with tracking because if you look at the front feet, like picture this if you can. Close your eyes and picture this. You know, this isn't a TV program, so you can close your eyes. You're not going to miss anything. If you're driving, don't close your eyes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if Teresa actually needed to tell you that, then uh, that might be natural selection at work, which is another natural thing. So the front feet come down, the back feet pass. The front feet come down, the back feet pass. Picture like a little rabbit moving. An interesting thing is picture the way our feet go when we walk, diagonal. One comes down, one comes forward, one comes in front of that, one comes in front of that. They're taking turns going forward, diagonal. Things that tend to live mostly on the ground have that pattern. But with rabbits and rodents, you find that pattern more in the front feet. So if I see two big feet and right behind it, kind of in between them, following a little bit, front, uh, two hind feet and behind them, behind those front feet, trailing a little bit the front feet, if they're kind of in a diagonal pattern, it looks like one came down, one came in front of it, this is an animal that probably spends most of its time on the ground. So if I'm trying to figure out if this is a squirrel or a rabbit, what do you think I'm, I'm looking at? Spends most of its time on the ground. Rabbit. Rabbit. If it's a squirrel, it will be more apt to plant both front feet side by side. Unlike the way we walk, just side by side front feet, and then a little bit further forward, side by side back feet. So these are the compression shapes we're looking for. This is also true of birds, too. If you got a passerine bird that tends to perch, it'll hop around. Like if you see it in loose sand, footprints side by side, that's a bird that's not on the ground much, as opposed to, say, a goose or a turkey, um, something that walks more. You'll see them do the diagonal walk. That's kind of a cool little trick there. 
Whew, man, there's so much to cover with the alphabet. Um, now, um, hmm, trying to figure out where to go from here. I'm pulling a Derek Jensen. <laughs> so, sign tracking is really important. I, I, I wasn't going to spend our time giving a lot of uh, recommendations for books. If you really are st- uh, getting out and tracking, um, definitely hit us up, contact us, and we'll tell you how at the end of the episode if you don't know already. But I'll tell you some books that'll help you. But uh, I'll say this one, Stokes' Guide to Animal Behavior and Tracking is great for learning animal signs. Don't just focus on footprints. Get to know, like, holes, holes in the ground. And by the way, in our area, there's a primary hole maker, and that's the groundhog. So even though groundhog might have moved out and a skunk moved in, a fox moved in, something else moved in, probably the thing that originally dug it is the groundhog. And you find in these native stories, so often groundhog is treated like a grandmother, a nurturer, the one whose home that that the characters will come into. And I feel like, you know, yeah, the more I track, the more these native stories that just seemed whimsical when I first heard them, I'm like, oh, wow, it really captures like somewhat of the, the essence of this relationship. So Grand uh, Woodchuck, uh, also known as Subterranean Whistlepig, Marmota Monax, uh, uh, Groundhog, all of these fun names. She's kind of like the grandmother, builds the house and a lot of people move in. Likewise, we've got white-tailed deer around here who are the primary trail makers. Not every trail you see is made by a deer. But if you see a trail that's really easy to see, chances are a deer made that trail and then other animals started using it. Um, that can be called an animal superhighway. You got a lot of animals going back and forth, depending on where, what it's going towards, you know, like a source of water that all the animals benefit from. And then if you follow that trail, you'll see little smaller trails deviate as the animal's needs uh, differentiate from the deer's. It can be really cool to do this, especially in the wintertime when a lot of the uh, maybe like the brambly type things are a little bit less, poison ivy's less, ticks are less. And, uh, find a place that maybe you wouldn't have necessarily gone in before and then try to find the deer paths and and the other paths that link it to yet more. And it's this huge, like, it's like a cityscape in a field that you had no idea was there. Mm -hmm. And it's also really fascinating. Like Teresa got on a big kick uh, not long ago of studying the Indian trading path, which comes from North Carolina. And uh, they theorize that this trading path was first a deer trail. And a lot of this trading path, you know, eventually opened up into wagon roads, which eventually got paved and became existing roads now. So a lot of these existing roads that we have actually began as deer trails. And if this sounds kind of far-fetched, imagine it. You're walking through the woods. There's no roads. There's not even any human trails yet. You're one of the first people here. You're trying to get through this forest These animals were already there, and they've already set a trail. It's a small trail, but it's a trail. Are you going to go fight the brambles, or are you going to take the path of least resistance? You're probably going to find yourself walking on a deer trail. And if you just randomly wander through the woods and uh, aren't following a trail, if you start tracking and paying attention, so often you'll find that you are on a deer trail. That's why you're walking that without even thinking about it you're naturally following the path of least resistance, which is what the deer did, and it became more the path of least resistance because the deer started using it. You Mm -hmm. look like you had something to say? I was just going to say, you know, not to mention if you were hunting your food and there's a deer path, you might, you know, be inclined to take that to see if there's any deer. Mm -hmm. 
And some other things to look for are plants that have been chewed on. Um, this can divi be divided into three main groups. Um, there are the ungulates, the deer, and they will clip things off at sort of a uh, an angle. Like it looks like somebody came through with a... No, actually this is rodents and rabbits. It's been a long time since I uh, studied chews because actually I have not found them. This is not a track sign I look, personally look for a lot. But I believe it's rodents and rabbits will bite plants in a certain way. It looks like somebody cut it at an angle, like scissors. <laughs> and that has to do with the way their teeth are set up. Deer, it'll look like somebody cut it straight across and a little more serrated. It doesn't look like scissors anymore, but it looks like a very careful rip. Dogs and cats, it'll often look like somebody just chewed the crap out of it. It's kind of mashed <laughs> up. It's got holes, random holes here. You know, and if you've ever had a dog or a cat and watched them chew grass, you can see why. They just kind of gnaw on it, like, you know, get that the, the nutrients from it and um, often leave most of the plant there, just kind of gnawed on. So these are some signs to look for. Of course, uh, beds, you know, any place that the ground is flattened, um, Often, the most beds I see, you know, and you can judge it by size, and there's a whole, like, kind of study in uh, Mark Elbrock's book, Mammals and Tracking, I think it's called, where you can actually get right down, like, a deer bed is a very carefully constructed thing, and it has a specific shape. It's bigger in the butt end, and you can see the two dents where it tucks its front feet under. And by knowing that specifically, not just that it's a deer bed, but how it's laying, um, it's fascinating when you start getting in these deer beds and realizing, wow, this is the calmest place. Oh, nice. The wind isn't blowing. They're facing the sun. The, the, the hill is slightly tilted to catch the morning sun. Um, the wind, the dominant wind is coming from this way. Like, this is a strategic place. And, uh, yeah, it's just fascinating. A whole study in deer beds alone is fascinating. And it leads you to some of the most beautiful spots, like these wonderful places in a field of broom sedge, for instance. But uh, checking out beds, and of course, smaller beds, like you find rabbit very often, and some others. And often when I find holes dug in the ground around here, you know, just kind of a random, like, what the hell is that? It'll just look like somebody dug a little hole. Uh, that's usually a squirrel. And, you know, I'm trying not to focus on other animals right now because mammals are such a good thing to start with. But I will throw in wild turkey here because very often I've come across places in the woods and it looks like somebody came through with a rake and cleared out a huge patch. <laughs> like, what the hell? There's a whole bunch of debris missing. And uh, that's often a turkey. Turkeys will just like scrape to look for seeds and stuff at a certain time of year. And what it'll look like is somebody came through and like built a shelter and took all the debris away from there. Oh, man. Um, so, yeah, when you start learning all these clues, it's a, it's a, it's fun when you ask the question, who? It's like a mix-and-match game. <laughs> um, I'd say some tools that are really good for helping you learn that are sketching, you know, getting down and trying to draw the track. And it's really good if you use your mind's eye, for instance, look at the track, turn away from it, and sketch everything you can remember. And then if you can't remember something, put the pen or pencil down. Pencils are better. Turn around and look at the track again. And then pick up the pencil. That's going to get it in your head more. You're practicing memorizing it. It'll speed up your learning. Um, other signs, of course, scratches on trees. You know, you can kind of make a, a guess, especially when you start um, getting more familiar with the animal. Roadkill is a great thing to check out to, learn, to really familiarize yourself with the width of hands and things like that. So you can distinguish things climbing the tree like a squirrel from a raccoon from a possum, things like that. Um, hair. Hair is a really good one. Now, 
some of the things I did, there was a time in my life when tracking was the most important thing to me. I had a reputation for it, and I was proud of that reputation, so I wanted to push it. I wanted to be the best tracker in the area. Um, I doubt I was, but for a while I thought I was, and it was a cool <laughs> aspiration. So I put together this hair book. Um, one of the ways that helped me, I had a talent for finding hair, which is really funny for a bald guy. But if I ever came across <laughs> like um, a roadkill animal, I would put on my gloves, I'd get out and I'd pluck out some back hair, some belly hair and some tail hair. And I'd put it in this photo album and mark it. And so anytime I'd find hair and the more you look for something, the more you'll find it. If you start looking for hair, hmm. you're going to find more and more and more because you start wiring your eyes to look for it. That's true for so much. It is true for almost anything I can think of. The more, like it says in the Bible, I love this this part that says, seek and you shall find. <laughs> the truer words ne were never spoken. You find what you look for. And if you're a tracker and you're looking for hair, you're going to start finding hair. So I started being able to tell not just what animal it belonged to, but if the hair was like belly hair, which suggested maybe the animal laid down here, things like that. So even by starting to identify this, it starts moving me on to the, the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story. Hmm. I also did the same thing for uh, feathers, you know, and tail feather, wing feather, um, and I think a contour feather, like one from the chest. So I started being able to read feathers really well and hair and, uh, even like if I'd see an animal that was like uh, a taxiderm, taxidermied, taxidermied animal in a museum or something. Like, for instance, I didn't see a roadkill bear, but I wanted bear hair. Oh, here's a stuffed black bear in the museum. Anybody looking? Fuck no. <laughs> oh. I'm plucking out some hair. Oh, shit. You know, and I kind of try to do it nonchalantly, <laughs> like I'm stretching, like, or, you know, like putting your arm around your girlfriend when you're watching a movie or something. Boing. Hair. Um, I also had, and this was my pride and joy for a while, my poop collection. Not your poop. Uh, well, let's say no. Um, <laughs> but anytime I'd find an animal's poop, I would try to identify it. And then I would put it on a pizza box in a place that would stay dry, like under some kind of shed and under a roof and let it dry out for about a week. And then I would spray it with polyurethane. And I know an ugly chemical, but for this job, it worked pretty good. And I put it in this jewelry case, the see-through jewelry case where you could see through the top. But then I'd open it up when I'd do a tracking class. If the nipple on the board didn't get the kid's attention, <laughs> me bringing out my shit collection did. <laughs> the box of shit. <laughs> and, man, I had everything. It was like I even found, like, black bear scat. I had, like, I would threaten kids sometimes, like, you know, when you go to the bathroom, I might add your poop to this collection. Oh, you're weird. Yeah. I had beetle scat. I had box turtle scat. I mean, I had really random stuff, like even caterpillar scat. You know, I remember... Frass. I, frass, yeah. I had this picnic table I'd sat, sit at, and there'd be these little things all over the picnic table, and I'd think, what are these? Are these, like, the parts of a plant that produce pollen? They don't look like seeds. You know, what the hell are they? And then... I ended up going to the Museum of Life and Science, and they had these great big caterpillars in one of the little displays. And I noticed their poop, even though it was much bigger, was the exact same pattern. And it looks like a tiny little oval ear of corn. But it's a very specific pattern. It looks like little kernels, like an ear of corn. And so far, every caterpillar I've encountered has that same poop pattern. So... It's really easy to identify caterpillar scat. And you might say, what the fuck do I care about caterpillar scat? It's one more 
part of this literacy. It's one more thing that you're familiar with. Because if you know that there are caterpillars, that tells you other things. That tells you things about the future. That tells you things about the plants. That gives you a beginning to learn about the whole network, the whole web work. So every clue is important, and that's something I learned as a tracker. There's no uh, useless clue. It all comes together, and that's when it gets exciting. It's beautiful. You feel like Columbo out there figuring out shit. <laughs> um, God. So, scent posts. Scent posts are another thing that are really interesting to study because animals will often, like a deer, for instance, um, they'll do what's called a buck rub. So they'll come to a tree and they'll take their antlers and they'll scrape up and down on that tree. And depending on how big the tree is and how far up on the tree, it gives you a pretty good guess on how big the deer is. It's kind of funny because like the, the young deer who don't really know what they're doing yet will kind of like go through the motions and you'll see the spindly little pitiful ass tree with like a little scrape on it. And I'm just picturing this little deer like, oh, take that. Mm, mm. Boy, the girls are going to love me. Mm. <laughs> and it's just really uh, laughable. It's like, you know, a boy trying to wear his, his dad's clothes or something. Um, and yeah, like getting to know the smells of animals. This is another really good identification thing. Um, I took a class where I got to learn the difference between red fox uh, scent and gray fox scent. And that person was even weirder than you. Well, I don't know. That's debatable. But Paul Resendez, he's one of my, definitely <laughs> one of my heroes. I love this guy. I won't talk a lot about him because I talked about him in stories. But uh, yeah, great guy. And it was fascinating to track by sense of smell. Like on this snowy day, you know, he had us walking around and like just sniffing the air and like, is it a little bit sharper and skunky or is it a little bit duller and musty? And that was the difference between red fox and gray fox. And then we would follow it and look for clues and damn if we didn't validate it. It's like, wow, that was a red fox. Didn't he have like cotton balls that were soaked in uh, urine or something? I don't know. I didn't see his balls. It wasn't that kind of class. <laughs> but no, I know what you're talking about. That was a Canadian that was taking another class. Oh, oh, oh. But yeah. Um, and God. Well, I'm just going to move on. There is so much to talk about with who. So we're, uh, whew, man, we're already halfway through this episode. So the next elder, you know, suffice it to say who is learning the alphabet. And uh, the next elder is where you really start to read. This is where I'd say you're actually tracking. And that is the question, what? This is the art of interpretation. What is this animal doing? Now, one of the most simple things you can do to start interpreting. So, for instance, you're solid on this is a coyote. I know all the signs to look for. Here's another one for the dog family, by the way, since I'm on the subject. If you can draw an X through the toes, an X, like picture the heel pad, the four toes. If you can draw an X, um, God, this is where the, uh, <laughs> it's too visual, but Go out. If you've got a dog or a member of the dog family, try to draw an X without hitting the toes or the heel pad, right? And hopefully you'll see what I mean. Um, so you're solid. It's a coyote. Now you're interpreting it. First thing you do, look down at the footprint and imagine you're the size of an ant. Because if you're looking at a little footprint and you're trying to tell which part is deeper, for instance, are the toes deeper or is the heel deeper? That can be a hard thing because we have dulled our senses. Our whole culture really wants things bright to catch your attention. Look over here. We're trying to sell you some shit you don't need. Look, look, bright neon lights. 
And what that does is your eyes start kind of quitting. You know, they're just like, ah, I'm so exhausted. I don't, I, I'm not looking at detail anymore. Same with our ears, same with all of our senses. We get dull, but we can start sharpening these things. And one of the ways for to sharpen your eye for detail is to use your imagination. That that useless imagination that you had as a kid that you just grew out of, that just allowed you to play with G.I. Joes and crap like that, um, that our culture really doesn't give enough credit to. That is a big part of our unique magic as a human creature. Imagination. And one of the ways to apply it is this. Imagine you're the size of an ant crawling into that coyote track. Suddenly, it gets a whole hell of a lot easier to tell what side is deeper. Now, what do you think the coyote's doing if you're pretty sure the toes are deeper? Um, I don't know, but I'm going to guess maybe like chasing something. I don't know. Well, that's not necessarily untrue given other context, but uh, it could be a good sign if there's not other clues of it moving fast that its nose is to the ground, sniffing oh. the ground. Whereas if it's upright, you know, its head is in a really upright, rigid posture, you might see that the heel is a little bit deeper. Okay, I can see that. That makes sense. So in other words, we're starting to give the story. We've, we've isolated the characters. Now let's see what they're doing in this story. Coyote is sniffing the ground. We have the beginning of that, that story. Um, and, you know, I gave you the seven groups of mammals here with compression shapes, toes, and claws. With interpretation, it gets really important to see if you can see gait patterns. So go to a place like a little sandy stretch next to a creek or something where you can see several footprints in a row. And just like all the mammals in your area divided into seven groups for individual feet, they all divide into four basic groups when you're considering how they walk. And these animals divide up differently than they do with the feet, the footprint, the foot, the feet. Yeah, the prints, yeah. the tracks. Um, I'll start with the slowest. These are the pacers. Now, this is where it gets cool. I love talking about gait patterns, gait progression, as it's called. The animals that tend to walk as pacers, and a pacer is an animal that moves both sides of its body at the same time. So, in other words, it's right front foot and left rear foot move, boom. And then the other side of its body moves, boom. Picture maybe, I'll tell you some animals that are in this group, and if you can picture them, walk. Raccoon, possum, uh, skunk, bear. These tend to walk this way. It doesn't mean they don't walk other ways, and this is the cool part. I'll get to this in a minute. But these are the animals that are most likely to move in this group. Next, remember there's only four groups. We have the diagonal walkers. We're in this group. Watch a baby crawl. It will put its right hand and left leg, knee, forward at the same time. It'll alter. It'll die. It'll, it's diagonal. <laughs> and so what this looks like when you're looking at it tracking is a diagonal pattern, like front foot, back foot, and then a little forward to the left, front foot, back foot, and then a little forward to the right, front foot, back foot, whereas the pacer looks like front foot right beside a rear foot, and then a little bit forward, rear foot right beside a front foot. 
It's like two by two by two, and I know this is really visual. By diagonal walkers, this is the biggest group in our area. Humans, dogs, cats, deer, um, probably horses. You know, there's a lot of things that go in this group. It's a big group. Um, the next pattern would be bounders, and these are animals that move kind of hop. They move their front feet and then right behind their rear feet. Front feet, right behind their rear feet. These are called bounders. And since this is hard to kind of picture, I'll go through this quick because, like I said, contact me if you want more details. I'll try to help you out. And finally, the gallopers. Uh, these are rabbits and, and rodents, and they move kind of do a hop as well, but their back feet pass the front feet. Now, the cool thing about gait progression that's really, uh, when you're interpreting this, is when I say an animal belongs in one of these groups, let's, let's go back to our coyote. You're like, all right, this is a coyote. I know it's a coyote. Or uh, better yet, let's say this is a red fox. I know this is a red fox because he's got furry feet. He's got really furry feet. And there's the chevron shape, this little arch that's really unique in the heel pad of the red fox. So I know I'm not just dealing with a fox. I'm dealing with a red fox. Coyote, uh, gray fox does not have these, these characteristics. He's got his nose to the ground. I can see that. You know, his toes are deeper. And... He's doing a diagonal walk. This is his harmonic gait. This is the gait he wants to be in if nothing is happening. Mm. He's relaxed. There's no reason to do anything else. It's just like when you walk, if you're not in a hurry or whatever, you've got a certain way you walk. This is like baseline. Basically. Baseline. That's another word for it. Harmonic gait, baseline. Now, suddenly he switches into a pacer pattern. He's moving both sides of his body at the same time, and you're like, huh, this is a break in baseline. This is a little red flag that the story just got more interesting. Why'd he move out of his most comfortable gait? For a diagonal walker to switch to a gait that's slower, he could either be stalking, he saw food, now he's slowing down, or he saw another member of his species and his threatening behavior. Tom Brown used to tell this story that uh, he would tell people that worked in prison, if you see a prisoner walk towards you and they start shifting more from the usual human diagonal walk to something more like a pacer where both sides of their body move a little more in tandem, go ahead and take them down. They are about to attack you. <laughs> he said body language can't lie. And, um, you know, and the, for the same reason, we do the same thing. If we start switching into that, we're starting to sneak or we're starting to get ready for a fight. If they speed up, that's another thing. Maybe the fox moves into a bound and then a gallop. Why are they running? That's, you know, conservation of energy is natural law. Animals don't waste energy for no reason. And this is less true of the young, but you might say their reason is to play, to practice, to hone their skills. But definitely for an adult, um, energy is precious. If they're moving a certain way, they have a reason to. So this gives you a big window. These four gates are huge for interpreting the story. And I love, love finding footprints and, and reading this. Um, cause then you can start looking for the clues, you know, what are some other clues? Start fanning out a little bit, see why the animal did what it did. And each one of these animals will move into any of those four gates, but knowing it's harmonic gate is important because when it leaves the harmonic gate, something is happening. Then it's time to start looking up more. What are the other clues? Is there a rabbit track around something? Um, and I just think that's the neatest thing in the world ever since I've learned that. And those are the four basics. There's lopes. There's all kinds of like many different gates that tell you different things in fine detail. <clears throat> um, yeah, so Teresa 
Have you... Did we ever go, like, trying to study gates, like, at that clay field that I go to sometime for tracking? Shit, I can't remember exactly. Um, I do remember... Well, this doesn't really necessarily have to do with gate, though, but that story in the woods here where we had the blood splatters. Oh, yeah. Let's save that for another elder. Okay. Um, yeah. Kill sites. That's another really fun thing to interpret when you find where an animal's been killed. You know, a bird kills it different than a, uh, a mammal will kill it. Um, and you can, you know, depending on how the feathers are chewed or the fur is chewed or how much slobber there is, uh, make a pretty good guess of who the culprit was and what they were doing. Um, and I talked about scat. Scat can also be really important in identif- in interpretation. For instance, I love coyote scat because if you find coyote scat, depending on what it looks like, it tells you what the coyote's doing just from its poop. If it looks like it's black and kind of slimy, then that's a coyote that's killed something pretty recently. And uh, they're eating the entrails, the insides first. So that coyote probably isn't hunting. If something runs right in front of it, yeah, it'll probably take the opportunity, but it's not hungry. It's not hunting. It's like a fat, happy coyote. Yeah. Now, if you find a coyote coyote scat that's all hair and bones, that's the end of that coyote's kill. It's down to hair and bones. You know, the meat's gone. That's a coyote who's looking for his next kill. He's hmm. hunting. So just that alone, knowing how to recognize the poop, gets you into the mindset where you're starting to become coyote. Um which is amazing. Another cool thing about canine scat interpretation is they will tend to scat right in the middle of an intersection of trails. So if I'm walking (laughs) along a trail and I find scat right in the middle of the trail, immediately, without anything else, I'm thinking probably a predator and probably a member of the dog family. Now, if I see that it's probably a member of the dog family, I start looking for some little trail. Often it's subtle, something I overlooked before that crosses it like an X an intersection. And because canines use their scat to mark territory, they do this because they want to show to, for it to be seen and smelled and noticed by as many animals as possible that this is my claim on this territory. Their, their scat is a signpost. You look like you were going to say something. I was actually going to say that about the trail. Like you might not even realize that there's a trail, but if you see poop, you can start to like put on your, your, literacy lenses there and see oh shit there really is a trail right there and i didn't even know it yeah another cool thing about poop is uh if you look at it closely and see which end is more pointy often that is the end that came out of the animal last so that little point on the turd is often pointing in the direction the animal went um and depending on the animal you know animals have different kinds of scats some of them are like pointier than others these are ways you can tell identification but uh Anyway, I'm getting bogged down in details. I could have done an episode on each one of these things by themselves. So moving along, we've got the next elder, which is when, the art of aging. And learning how to age a track is about as exciting as watching paint dry. This is an elder that (laughs) requires a lot of patience. But a couple of little tricks right away. For instance, uh, one thing that you want to start paying attention to is weather. Um, I used to have to take a little notepad and write down like details about the weather, wind direction, quality of the sunlight, temperature, phase of the moon, uh, when the sun rises and when it sets, like the times, I'd get that from the newspaper and I'd write that down four times a day when I was learning tracking. I didn't really understand why. It was kind of like one of those karate kids, wax on, wax off. Like what the hell? I wanted to learn karate. You know, why am I having to learn so much? I didn't want to be a damn meteorologist, but 
one day I had paid attention to the wind and I knew when the wind changed direction that was coming from the west all day and then it changed direction came from the east and I was tracking a coyote through a field and uh, I saw that the grains, tiny little grains of sand were piled up ever so slightly more on one side of the track. And so that told me down to a few hours because I'd, I'd been paying attention to the weather that the wind was blowing those grains of sand to that side of the track. Whoa. And I could make a pretty damn good guess of how old it was. Like tiny little sand dunes. Tiny drifts. little grains of sand, yeah. Like not the kind that would get moved by the weight of the animal, but yeah. just the kind that kind of drift across the yeah. the solid dent of the track. Um, I've had so much fun tracking coyotes. Aging, another good trick that's uh, really good to use right away is indexing. And that means if you see a track, make a track beside of it. If you see a broken branch break the branch of the same kind of uh, tree or whatever right beside of it and compare. <clears throat> if it looks exactly the same, chances are it's pretty fresh. If it looks different and pay close attention to those edges when things dry out, when they crack, when they round off, um, it's older if it looks different. Now there's a couple neat little tricks like, uh, you know, this is another name for this exercise is wisdom of the marks. I had tracking students one time go out and step in debris leaves and stuff like that and mark with the stick their toe and their heel so they could find the track later and then come out and step again and we did this a few times you know to compare like every couple of hours and what we found with debris is it does this interesting thing where when you step on it it'll fluff right back up Hmm. but then it'll sink down as it gets older weird I mean, how the hell are you going to intuit that unless you start testing it, you know, trying stuff out? And people tell me that, like, indigenous people, uh, you need science to live in the woods. These are kind of the things I remember. <laughs> like, you don't need science, as we use the word, to experiment. This was not absent from what's called pre-scientific cultures, mm-hmm. from a mythological culture. They understood you had to play with the universe, experiment, and watch it. This is human. It's a bigger umbrella than science. Um and those are three elders. The fourth elder is why the art of ecology. And this is where, you know, like native literacy mother, this is where a good understanding of the wider spectrum of nature comes into play. Um, for instance, why was the animal here? Do you know what coyote eats? Do you know what coyote's doing at this time of year? Is coyote raising its young? Is coyote worried about mating? Is this a young coyote seeking out its territory? Um, This is where it comes in really handy to understand the bigger picture, ecology, the connections. Is there a patch of something coyote is interested in over here? Why is coyote here? So I'm, I'm interpreting all this. I know this is coyote. He was sniffing, had his you know, head to the ground. For the most part, he's walking in his harmonic gait. He sped up a little bit there, but then he slowed back down. Um, and it looked like this is kind of old, you know, since I've been indexing and practicing with this stuff, I'm going to guess about a day ago. It's not real old. And uh, since I've been keeping up with the weather, I know that it was like really cold that night. You know, it was a bitter, still, cold, moonlit night. But why was he here? Why is Coyote here? Why not on the other side of the road? Why is he in this field at all? This brings me into the bigger picture. Is is rabbit here? Hmm. Is mouse here? You know, like what else is here? So that ecology, that's also one of my favorite questions. And I think we're wired for this question specifically too. 
I mean, isn't it kind of a, the stereotype of a kid, you know, asking why? <laughs> you know, we just love that question. We grow, we grow up wondering why. And uh, it's a fascinating question. And to me, it is a question that, that connects us, that opens doors um, even more than the other questions. It's one of my favorite elders. Um, something I would have students do to practice this, to kind of tune into what's happening is I'd have a little patch of woods and say, you know, within these boundaries, I want you to get, uh, I can't remember the, it's something like the doctrine of extremes is what we called it, but get like, you know, eight pine cones and I'm going to want you to put a pine cone. Don't worry about whether you can find it or not. I want you to find it right now and whether you can refind it later. Um, but find the sunniest place in this area. Find the shadiest place. Find the windiest place. Find the stillest place. Find the driest place. Find the wettest place. You know, things like that. And these extremes are really handy to know because an animal, depending on what the extreme is, will seek the other one. For instance, if there's an area and you're wondering where the deer are and you notice you're in a wetland, and there's a little patch over there that's like the dry place. It's a little bit higher than the rest. That's where more often than not, you're going to find all the animal sign. Same with a windy place. You're out on the prairie, wind is howling, howling, and there's one tree with the grass kind of clumped around it. That's where you're going to find the deer beds. <laughs> Extremes. Same thing with us. If it's cold outside, where are you going to be? You're going to be in the sunniest, warmest place, the calmest place. Um, so that doctrine of extremes is a really good way to start tuning in to answering the question, why? Um, and where? Now, this is where I'd love to hear your story, Teresa. Um, where is the art of trailing? And this has everything to do with practice. Um, there are games, there are activities you can do to practice to rewire your eyes, but basically what it comes down to is that, rewiring your eyes to see things that seem invisible to you now. And uh, it's a lot of fun, and this is, you know, where the search and rescue puts its focus. Um, they might not be too good at the other things I was talking about, but they've learned all the tricks they can about where, how to find a missing child, how to find a fugitive, um, for instance. And Teresa? <clears throat> One of the... Uh foraging Fridays, or as Gumby called them, famine Fridays that we tried where uh, we could only eat the food that we found uh, from nature, uh, whether that was going fishing or, you know, foraging roots or shoots or whatever we could find. We were walking along um, in the woods, kind of where we generally are here, and uh, I think we were walking on a deer trail, and all of a sudden I was like, whoa, there's blood yeah, and it was one of those times that, like, we weren't trying to walk the deer trail, but I was just like, look, we're on a deer trail. Yeah, and the blood looked fairly fresh. I mean, it wasn't coagulated fully yet, and it just caught your eye because there were just brown leaves on the ground and then this splatter of red blood. And I thought, you know, as I don't really know what I'm doing tracking, but there is a possibility that if we can find where this blood goes, maybe there might be an animal that, you know, if it's injured, if it's dead, we might be able to eat that. I know it sounds gross, but what are you going to do when you really can't just go to the store and get food? I so, mean, the blood was fresh. I don't think there was anything gross about it unless you're a vegetarian and just meat in general is gross anyway. Right. So um, 
so we really started looking at these drops of blood, even to see, like, could we see which direction the animal was headed? Was there any indication in the shape of the blood drops that were, you know, was it going a certain direction when it hit the leaf? I mean, there's just so many details you might be able to use, but I, you know, like I said, I'm not, I don't know what I'm doing. Um, Ben Gumby, did you want to add to that experience? Well, we lost the trail, um, but it was so fascinating to spend, like, it felt like a couple hours that, you know, sometimes the best trail we could find was just one drop of blood. And I'd have Teresa, like, move a stick beside the trail to keep up with, like, so we could find that again. And then, like, kind of scout out. And by the way, of course, a obvious but important technique that people can overlook don't mess up your clues. First thing you do on a crime scene <laughs> on a detective show is rope off the crime scene. Don't come in here. we got to preserve the clues because as soon as people start moving stuff around, you know, you've compromised the crime scene. Who knows what the clue is? It might be a clue of the person, the detective that came in. Likewise for a tracker. So that was really cool to, like, look for that one blood drop of time at a time and then see if I could find one more and then move that stick forward. You know, sometimes that's what tracking is. And, uh... If you're kind of done with that story, that's a good segue to something else. I was just going to say, um, the only other clue that could have potentially been a part of this story is um, in these woods that are next to old farm fields, there was still some remnants of barbed wire, like barbed wire fence. So it's possible, you know, putting stories together that that barbed wire might have played a role in the blood drops, but I didn't find any fur or anything on the barbed wire. Mm Mm-hmm. And, you know, moving slow and looking for a subtle clue reminds me of one of the the exercises that I was shown to help me practice this. And in this exercise, you take 10 popsicle sticks, or if you don't have popsicle sticks, 10 sticks. And wherever you start, stick the stick in the ground at your heel to mark the beginning. Then take 10 steps and then stick a stick in the ground to mark your 10th step at the heel. Now go back, and you can do this with a partner. It's even more fun with a partner. You know, you can take turns. You can have them not look, but it doesn't really matter for this exercise whether they look or not. And see if you can find and put a stick at the heel of all the tracks in between, all 10 tracks. If it's really easy, find a harder substrate. Challenge yourself. This might seem easy, and depending on you might get lucky and find something that's really easy, but uh, it's amazing how hard this can be too. I learned pretty quickly doing tracking classes to be careful with this one because if I have students that are already convincing themselves they can't track, if I'm not careful with this exercise, they're going to it's going to seal the deal. I can't track. I can't see this. This is invisible. I just walk through freaking sand and I can't see my tracks. I give up. So I got to be careful with this one. But my teacher told me John Young gave me this uh, advice. John Young from Wilderness Awareness School. Spend all the time you can on the track you can't find. Don't skip ahead. It's so tempting to skip ahead to like, Hmm. all right, I can't find this one, so I'll go to the next one and then try to come back. He's like, if you spend all your time looking for that one you can't find, it's going to teach you more than skipping ahead and just looking for the ones you already can find. You already can find them. Man. It's the one you can't find that is your teacher. And man, what a powerful lesson just in general that is, you know, like... We're struggling trying to figure out ventilation on our survival shelter we're building now, you know, and it's the same kind of lesson. It's it's that lesson that doesn't come easy that is going to teach you. The thing that came easy, you might have just got lucky. It doesn't teach you nearly as much as the failure. Um, a little trick I learned back in the day, and they said don't get addicted to this because it will actually impede your your 
success as a tracker, but it's a nice little shortcut when you need it as a tracking stick. So if you can find a couple tracks in a row, you can take a stick and let's say you put a rubber band at the heel of one track. And then you put a second rubber band at the heel of the second track. Now that is a tracking stick. If you move that stick forward where the first rubber band is at the heel of the next track, oh. that next rubber band can help you find the heel of the following track. Ah, I see, I see. It's kind of like one of those things that they used in math, like a protractor or something. Like you could set it for a certain degree of difference and then like move it and that would be the same distance. No, I don't know. I dropped out of high school. I, okay. didn't, I didn't use no protractor. <laughs> it's kind of like a, a tracking ruler also, kind of. Hmm. You're like you're making your own um, distance. Hmm. So you don't till your field with a protractor or nothing? No, nah, I might. Well, that tracking stick, yeah, that's a handy thing. And again, this works for baseline. If the animal breaks out of baseline... If you can't find the track and then you like spot the track, but it's out of the pattern, something happened. An event has happened. It's time to start looking for clues in a wider, wider range. Um, my favorite game, and I like to start tracking classes with this. I'm actually going to teach a tracking class uh, in two days. Teresa and I are going to this. You know, there's a group that uh, wants us to come out like every month. And one of the main things they want to know about is tracking. And I love to start this class off with this game, the tracking, the log drag game. It's a Boy Scout game, and it's how they teach trailing, and I love it. You take a log, and you pound in about eight nails around one end of the log, sticking out so it catches the ground. Tie a rope to the other end, and it's basically hide-and-seek. Somebody goes, and they drag that log and, uh, you know, take them on a little route and then hide. And then people have to try to follow that log. And if you think, wow, what a joke, a log with eight nails, no problem. It is amazing what that teaches you, and it's amazing how much it mimics an actual deer trail. Because often when you're tracking animals, unless you're in snow or sand, you're looking for a pattern of disturbance rather than footprints, much like that log. And so every time they'd find it, the person hiding, they'd remove a nail. Remove a nail until they're just dragging a log. Mm. Now that's tough. And if they can find the person dragging the log, you know what they do then? Eat them. Before that. Oh. No log. No log. <laughs> Imagine that. I've never taken a class to that level, but wow, hide and go seek, but not just randomly looking for somebody, tracking them. No log. Mm. Man, what an awesome game. Um, so yeah, have fun with that one. And again, like you don't have to do these elders in order, you know, if it's just like you've got a kid, especially if you got a kid around you. But actually, I had an ex-girlfriend that we would actually play the log drag game. And it's fun for adults, too, man, getting outside and just taking turns. And, you know, you, you can track together, too. So leave the log out there. The person doesn't have to hide with it. Leave the log. Then the person comes back and says, all right, here's where the trail starts. <laughs> it's so much fun. And you can take it through different substrates and great way to practice tracking. Can't say enough about that game. And finally, the last elder, how? The art of empathy. I think this is the elder that is the most alien to our culture and our way of thinking. It's the, the elder that is the synthesis of all the other elders. Here's a coyote with his nose to the ground, walking at baseline, last night, uh, probably hunting, because there's a field nearby with... with uh, Mice, and I just saw a scent post he left, and it was hair and bones. And um, 
I can see his tracks. I can even see his tracks like his trail, even when I can't distinguish the footprints when he moves into the grass a little bit. So I'm following him. I know where he's coming from. I know where he's going. I'm following the trail. I put all that together. And now what's it like to be the coyote? How does the coyote feel? How does it feel to be the coyote? This is where it's a really powerful thing to do that thing science tells us not to do. Anthropomorphize. Become the animal. There can be a danger to it to imagine like animals are just like us and, you know, put our thoughts in their heads. But there's also a place for it. When you look like a coyote, for instance, there's a lot we have in common with this close mammalian relative of ours, the coyote. We eat. We're omnivores. We're, uh, we have eyes. We're looking at the world visually. We're listening. We have, you know, five digits, even though they walk on four toes and we walk on five. Um, and that's another thing that's really cool, you know, sidebar, um, plantigrade and digitigrade animals that have to move fast tend to walk on their toes. And what that looks like often is four toes. If you look closely at a dog's foot, he's got a fifth toe. It's just up on his, you know, his foot, what you call his foot is just his toes. His heel is actually up on his leg. It never touches the ground. And that's a springy animal. That's an animal that is dependent on moving fast. Hmm. Plantigrade animals, which are well represented in the pacer group, animals that walk with both sides of the body at the same time, something I left out of that, they walk, tend to walk on all five toes. They put their whole foot down. And how do they get away with this, not moving as fast as the other animals? This is where we find animals with great defense mechanisms. Who's going to fuck with bear? Skunk. Who's going to mess with skunk? <laughs> Wolverine is in this group. Uh, Who's going to mess with Wolverine? Nobody. Nobody. You know, we've got Possum. Jesus. Possum doesn't have a huge defense mechanism, but he has a really good strategy. Possum isn't going to try to outrun you. Play dead. And Raccoon? Raccoon is a fierce fighter. I've seen a dog unzipped by a raccoon oh. before. It was ugly. So, yeah, just a little sidebar there. But back to empathy. <laughs> <laughs> Segway. In indigenous cultures, tracking cultures, they had all these ways of uh, these rituals to mimic the movements of animals, to wear animal furs, to do dances that even though they might not look exactly like the way the animal moved, there was something in that that captured the spirit that brought them closer to that animal. This is not so different than when you watch a detective show and like you got all the bumbling detectives who are, you know, setting their coffee cup down on the crime scene and like, <laughs> all right, we got it figured out. And they're absolutely wrong. And then here comes Columbo. Here comes the, the sharp detective. What's the first thing they do? They go through the motions. They act it out. Well, this person shot here. The victim fell back this way. Animal form. It's the same thing they're applying to the crime scene that the tracker applies to tracking. Don't just like look down and say that's a pacer. Get down, act it out, feel it, become the animal. Some of our oldest stories like werewolves, um, God, all these indigenous stories where people actually intermarry with animals because the animals will take off their suit and they'll look just like people. Or people will put on an animal suit and go down into the fish kingdom. And, uh, you know, there's it's a recognition that we are all in this together, that there's not so much difference between us and the frog people, us and the wolves. You know, we're all different tribes. We're all people. We're the human people. They're the dog people. They're the frog people. 
It's a recognition of this. And so they seek to remember that, to make that vivid, to hone that, because that is the final element of tracking. That is a a statement of how well you've mastered it, is how well you can wear that animal's skin. And if you've done your homework with all the other ones, that will feed empathy. And empathy is a beautiful thing. To me, it's the final connecting point, you know, where you are... I don't even know how to really say it, but there's something really beautiful when you track. Because when you get down and you look at those footprints, whether you can follow them or not, whether you lose the thread of them or not, it's a direct line to a living animal somewhere on the other end of that string. A lot of cultures believe that wasn't just a physical clue kind of thing. There was a direct line of energy. And I've even heard of Kalahari Bushmen who would put their fingers in a track and tell you exactly what the animal's doing right now. Ooh. They said it was a direct link, like a circuit, a conduit. Whoa. And they said they had to be careful with that because the animal is also aware of this. Animals have a wisdom that we have left behind for all the intelligence we've tried to amass. And the animal might get spooked. So the animal will feel, whoa, somebody just like plugged into my, that line, you know, I better use some tricks and get out of this. But, uh, God, I thought I'd be able to cover everything I wanted to. But I think I got the broad strokes. There's just so much to talk about tracking. And uh, I'll just say, please, if you go out and track and you have questions, um, you know, contact me. And I won't necessarily have the answers, but I have uh, found a lot of resources and aids that I think might help. So anything you want to add, Teresa, before we move on to end this episode? I feel like... a. If not all the native literacy episodes, um, the majority of them, and I, I think I'd say all of them, there's also this deeper meaning. You know, what if you listen to this and you're like, I'm never going to track anything. Like, I don't feel like that's a useful skill for me. But these questions that in other applications, like, I don't know, journalism, for example, these same questions come up and the further removed we are from from questioning, from trying to use our, our rusty, dull brains, um, I feel like we're moving a little bit further away from humanity. Like we're turning into those robots that so many people that are much more intelligent than I am are saying that we're moving towards. So I just really feel like these questions can, you know, help us again to start honing those skills, honing our our brains and our eyes and just all of our senses to, to be human, to be an actual human. Yeah. Like at first when I started taking survival classes, I did not tune into the tracking part. I wasn't interested because I didn't think I'd realistically want to hunt. You know, I ate meat, but I just, I don't know. I didn't feel like I was a hunter trapper kind of guy, but what caught me with tracking was the awakening. Suddenly like, Knowing the stories that are written around me, the awareness, um, that was what hooked me with tracking. So even if you never, you think you're never going to need tracking, oh, I've got a, I've got a security system. I don't need to know whether intruders are coming and, you know, I got a gun. I know how to hunt. You know, I, I track enough. I know what a deer track looks like. It's so much more to track. It's such a window into the sacred. It's like one of the, I feel like our primary best tools for reconnecting to exactly that source we need to connect with. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
one last little note on on bird language you know i feel like maybe some people might wonder like why birds why'd you do a native literacy on birds and tracking why these two things um, a couple of elders that birds come in really important for are who, identification. Birds, if you start tuning in, they have different signals and calls for specific animals. They will behave in very different ways, and I'll get into that in a future uh, podcast. Like that cat earlier. Like that cat. And also where, trailing. Um, they are hugely, like if you're tracking an animal and you listen to the bird language, often when your eyes fail you, your ears will pick up on the birds, and they'll tell you where that animal is gone. And animals are really tricky. Um, I've heard a lot of stories about deer ghosting. And what that means is a deer will run just out of sight. It'll look like full throttle, like it's going to run miles, but it knows exactly when it's out of your view, and suddenly it hunches down. It even crouches down a little bit and starts veering off at a, a an angle and circles back around. It doesn't want to leave that area. It just wants to get you out of that area. It was at that area for a reason. It liked the food. It liked the water, something about it. So animals have all kinds of tricks. And it's amazing when you start uh, getting into that world, you know, that they're not just like cute little animals running around. They are strategic. They're warriors. There's all sorts of lives happening that we are, we don't really know about. Yeah. So our listener right in it's getting cold out here. The rain's about to come. Ooh, um, this is Tommy from Nesodtangen, Akershus, Norway. And God bless you. I, <laughs> I know I didn't pronounce that uh, at all right, but Norway. Tommy from Norway. Hey, Tommy. And he was listening to our episode Knock Knock, which is one of my favorite episodes, by the way, in case you were wondering. And uh, he wrote, Hi, I was driving home around 2300 listening to your latest podcast. About the time you were talking of a write-in, I had to hit the brakes hard when a big moose ran across the road. Oh, crap. While driving further, and Gumby, I guess, played the harmonica, I had to hit the brakes again when two deer ran across the road. How is this relevant to the podcast, you might think? Well, after these two incidents, I felt kind of like a joke. (laughs) Here I am, driving this machine on this road, the straight line, cutting through nature like a scar. And I wonder if those animals think of me as some stupid joke, too sitting in a moving, noisy, stinking box like a moron. Yeah, I like the sentiment. Uh, What do you think about that, Teresa? (laughs) Well, uh, I guess the the idea that we're a joke is kind of that, you know, taking, not taking ourselves so seriously. So I really like that. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I think... I think we're, we should be a joke to each other, you know, like this is an absurd situation we're in and the things we consider important are absurd. And I think the only thing that keeps it from being just a flat out joke is how freaking tragic and dangerous it is. So, uh, yeah, I think of those old Zen masters who, you know, I mean, they lived in pretty dangerous times themselves and would, would laugh, you know, in the face of just basically anything. So, you know, maybe that's a good way of looking at things like a joke but whatever gets us free, right? So if you'd like to contact us, you can find us at www.escapingsociety.weebly, B as in um, beaver.com. We also have a Facebook page. Uh, I've learned how to make memes, so I'm torturing everybody I can with them and kind of getting burned out on them, so maybe I'll... uh, (laughs) <laughs> Lay off the memes a little bit. I'm about to get kicked off of Facebook, I think, which wouldn't be a bad thing. Um, 
And we have a YouTube channel that we try to post stuff on there. We've got a donate button on our website. So if you have benefited from our podcast and are able to make a financial donation, um, it is very much appreciated. If not, um, contact us. We've got an easy way to contact us on our website. Send us a story, a joke, a question, a challenge, um, anything like that. And am I forgetting anything? Just thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Bye. Oh, society sucks and we don't need it. It's killing your kids, so why do you feed it? They'll tell you to stay, but you don't need to heed it. You can give them the finger. There's no time to linger. So, thank you for listening to our song. It's not very good and it went kind of long. Don't care if you like it, cause we'll be gone. Over that next horizon. We ain't got no address.